Church of England has <clears throat> a diocese that's outside the bounds of England um, called the, the Diocese of Europe, I think. But I'm certain that they have um, two parishes of, that are just of quite of note this morning. They have one parish in Moscow, and they actually have one parish in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And this morning, the parish in Kiev, um, their priest, their Anglican minister, whose name is Sylvia Cortez, is gathering with their community um, to say prayers, and they're leading prayers not from their parish church, but from a bomb shelter this morning. And so we, of course, join our prayers with theirs. In this gospel reading, the place from which Jesus prays matters and is highlighted. Luke tells us that after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit drives or leads Jesus into the wilderness. So Jesus is praying far beyond Jerusalem, far beyond the comforts of home and of friendship, far beyond synagogue and temple where his community gathers to hear God's word and to say their prayers. He's alone in the wilderness. And that means in part that he is alone with his own self. And you and I know what that can feel like, maybe not for 40 days and 40 nights, literally, but we know what it feels like to face what is within us in our own mind and heart and soul and to wrestle inwardly, say, in the middle of the night. Jesus is doing something like that much more dramatically than just in the middle of the night. So he's in solitude, he is alone, unless you count the devil, his conversation partner. How do we imagine Satan? How do we picture Satan? And that's actually an interesting way at, at coming at this gospel passage is from the history of Christian iconography, the history of art within church and theology. There's a scholar who points out, and I find this fascinating, that Satan, we have to wait until the, the ninth century for a definite appearance of Satan in Christian iconography. Here's what that means. For 800, 900 years, Satan was not depicted in frescoes or images. It was this complete absence of an image for Satan. And I find that really interesting and actually compelling and a kind of lens on this gospel reading. Satan can be imagined less as a presence, less as something that we see, and more so something that we hear. One of the many voices, perhaps, one of the many intuitions and, and, and choices that come to every human being every single day with which we wrestle. To put it in the simplest terms, if you want to demythologize it, do I speak or do I mean remain quiet? Do I head that way or do I turn around and go that way behind me? What do I do with the time that I have in this moment? Jesus is wrestling with something like all of that, and one of the voices that he hears is this voice of Satan with these, these consecutive um, temptations. I think it's, it's humble and wise to, to imagine Satan in one sense as being 
just simply one of those voices within us, not something that's outside of us, alluring or tempting us. And we imagine that voice as being within us, one of the many that we hear and demythologize it in that sense. Um, we're less prone to project negativity or evil or badness onto other people or events or things. We look within, and that seems humble and wise to me. Um, I had a, one of our first bishops in, in the Diocese of Alabama, anytime clergy were, were complaining or sort of going on and on about people or ideas or something, he would always say to us, if you spot it, you got it. I didn't enjoy it when he said that. <laughs> but there's wisdom in that. Look, look within before projecting it all on other people. And if that's the case, and I believe to a degree it is, there's something really comforting in this gospel reading because it means that Jesus in his own humanity relates to us when we do that in the middle of the night or each and every day of our lives, when we wrestle inwardly with, with all the opportunities and the voices and the feelings and the intuitions we face. Jesus can relate to that. I also find it comforting because it means that some days we're going to get it right and some days we're going to get it wrong. Part of what it means to be a human is to wrestle inwardly, even daily, with, with, with how we'll offer our lives for the sake of, of love and, and, and such. So Christ relates to us, and we therefore to him. We're not alone, in other words, in the middle of the night with our own thoughts and prayers and feelings. There, there's a heavier interpretation, though, of this gospel reading that's also really, really important. And the heavier interpretation probably... <clears throat> is the one that comes up when you think about the third temptation, the last one, that is. Can you all be patient with me? Let me do this. Let me try to tighten it. I think that's better. The heavier interpretation relates to this, this third one, where Jesus is offered the ability to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. In one sense, that's the temptation to confuse faith and magic, or mystery and magic, which is a perennial religious temptation, that our faith makes us super heroic or just fixes things in the whim of a prayer or the blink of an eye. But on, a, on another level, the, what we see here is this conversation partner is, is tempting Jesus to destruction. And that's the heavier interpretation of what's going on here, and that is our encounter with what is so destructive in life that perhaps it only uh, deserves the, the, this title of, of being evil. There's an Episcopal priest named Pamela Cooperwhite who has a PhD in psychology and teaches at Union Seminary. We, we had Dr. Cooper White a year ago. I think she's, she's just brilliant and fascinating. And she has a wonderful, it's an academic book, but it's a wonderful book called Braided Selves. And in this book, she's got a chapter on evil. And she says that what makes evil evil 
is not just that it can destroy a person intrapsychically, but that it has the, the power and the potential to tear the fabric of human relationships and ultimately of community. So evil in that sense is what is so destructive that it tears human relationships and community. It's so destructive that we know and feel that it's not just something coming from within us like a negative voice. It's something more, it's something societal. Think about um, the evil of, of white supremacy in this country, in this world, and the violence that that ideology produces. Violence, in this sense, is always paired with evil at its most destructive. And I imagine that on this Sunday morning, when Christians and Episcopalians are gathered in Kiev in a bomb shelter, and they pray that petition in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. I imagine that that's how, what they're thinking about and feeling, to be delivered from something so destructive that it, it tears fabric apart. And so we join our prayers with theirs this Sunday morning. I want to end, however, <clears throat> by highlighting what it is we're delivered for, not just from, but for. We're delivered for something, and that something is in part God, our Father who art in heaven, the divine parent who cradles us as a mother cradles a child from breath one. We are delivered for God's child, Jesus, who promises to be with us always in moments of community and in moments of solitude so that in one sense, you and I in one sense are never alone. And we're definitely delivered for community to gather together in moments like this, to huddle together. The most comforting and urgent and holy thing that you and I can ever do with the time that we're given is to keep company with one another, to draw close and remind one another and ourselves as best we can that we're not alone. In Christ, we're not alone.